certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Today, the trial of the century stretches all the way to the UK, where scientists made a DNA breakthrough. This is day 48 of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo joining you with Damien Cripps and Tim Clark, who is calling in during the afternoon court break. So, Tim, this is the first UK witness, but that, this witness is actually in Perth. Yes, that's right, Nat. She's, um, she's flown all the way here as, uh, to make a special guest appearance. Her name is Carol Evans, and she was uh, basically the, the boss, the uh, reporting scientist at FSS in Birmingham in 2008 when these uh, tiny fragments of fig nails uh, flew all the way over there, were received in London, and then couriered, we found out, up to Birmingham um, where, the, uh, where this crucial DNA work was done on them. And so Miss Evans has, has come to Perth to uh, give her evidence in person. And that started today, will continue tomorrow. And in between, we're going to have two of their former colleagues of FSS who are going to give their evidence via video link, um, which is why we explained last night. That's why we're, we're starting late and finishing late in court tonight. And we've talked before a little bit about FSS. Um, did you hear any more about uh, just how their operations worked? And, and we do know that they were world leaders. Were they quite advanced? Yes. We, I mean, we've heard a little bit and we, we know a little bit. They were, at the time, they were government-owned or the government-contracted uh, DNA laboratories. They had various sites all over the UK, six different labs, London, Birmingham, which are the two main ones uh, where we or the Claremont um, case is concerned with. Um, but, but they did the majority of casework for a lot of the, uh, the police forces in the UK at that time. Um, and on top of that, they had a research and development department uh, headed by Jonathan Whitaker, who we've discussed before. And at, in that department, they were responsible for pioneering this low copy number DNA technique which, uh, which was eventually used on the, on the macro exhibits. And uh, we've been told that that elicited the forensic breakthrough. And so today we started the walkthrough from the very first moment that, that the FSS became involved, 1st of September 2008 at 2.22 p.m. We even know the time of day where they received exhibits in London. And we've been, for the first hour or so today, we were walked through exactly how they got there, what happened when they did get there, how they were labelled, what they looked like a little bit, the bags that they came in at least, and then they were couriered up, couriered up to Birmingham, which is where the work, the DNA work, the extraction work um, actually started. So um, we've, we've got a little bit into that, um, and we've seen some of the documents related to that, but we've got a fair way to go. Damien, how often have you heard about um, DNA and forensics and samples being sent overseas. Is it something that's common now that you would come across or not so much? I, I don't think so, Nat. I think that um, these days the Australian labs and the people in this country that are doing it are very well regarded. I don't think that we're behind the eight ball as such, but I think it might have been the case. I don't know for certain. I think the case is back 
um, when these samples were had been taken and then were subsequently being considered, it was a case that other areas in the world had more advanced um, processes or had people who'd been working on it longer, and that's how we ended up in that position. Now, it, and it might be the case that you might simply find one or two people or one lab that are actually excelling so far in front that when the question comes up, somebody who's aware of that lab might say, you know, we might really benefit from sending this over there. Um, I'm not really completely up to speed on the background of why these um, samples were sent where they were sent, but it seems to make sense that if you're really trying to get to the bottom of um, what a sample means to a case and somebody can give you those answers, you, you would spare no expense. You'd put it on the plane and send it. So, um, But my view at the moment is, well, not my view, but my um, out, outlook on where we are at the moment with samples, I think that the Australian um, bodies and companies that are doing that have got all the technology that anywhere overseas has. But it, it does come down to um, the people that are operating those tests, you know, like, and, and are they measuring up? And it wouldn't matter what part of the world you're in, you're always going to have fluctuating levels of people's abilities. And as I said to you guys when I was last on, people make mistakes. Sometimes people make mistakes. You, you, you can allow for it, but you can't prevent it. You can reduce it and do all those things, but um, unfortunately, we're humans and you put yeah. a human into the element and things can go wrong. So, um, But I think right at the moment, most of the um, testing facilities and everything we've got here are uh, world-class. Yeah. Well, as we've seen, you know, Path West during the course of this trial have been put under extraordinary scrutiny. Um, Tim, was there any discussion um, with Ms Evans today about their processes and their chances of contamination in their labs? Yes, there were, she, for the brief amount of time she was on the stand, she was taken a little bit to their uh, practices um, and, and how their labs operate. As I mentioned, there were six different sites uh, dotted around the UK. Um, so the, the movement and tracking of movement of exhibits had to be spot on, obviously, and we've, we, we've seen a little bit of that. Well, we've seen a lot of that here, but now we've seen a little bit of that there as well. And she was asked a little bit about their, their facilities, particularly in, in, in the lab called Trident Court, which is where she was based and where this work was done. And we heard that their um, extraction lab, or the lab that the initial process was done, went to extraordinary lengths, uh, it, this is in 2008, uh, to make sure that there was the, the least amount or, or minimization of the risk of contamination to such an extent that they had a pressurized lab which enabled the air to flow only out of it and not into it from other parts of the lab. Um, so there wasn't any chance of any particles from any other part of the building uh, flowing in. So, and the judge asked a specific question: well, Did that did that mean that when you opened the door, that the 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 air from the, the, the this particular pressurised lab only flowed outwards, um, out of the door, and didn't come in? And she said yes. So that was the extent they were going to back then to ensure that their uh, their processes were as clean and as, as contamination free as possible. She also said that they always in that particular part of the lab where the first the you know exposure I suppose of the uh, exhibits were done, they wore lab coats, uh, gloves, hair nets, and masks at, at that time. And, it, and, she, and Ms. Evans described how it was basically cleaned top to bottom every week. So I mean that that's the level that they were working on at that time 
but as Damien says, your uh, your um, your practices are only as good as your people, I suppose. And uh, those people that we, that those are the two witnesses that we're going to hear from tonight on the video link, including a lad called or a man called Andrew Talbot, who was we've learned in the opening was the the, the, the scientist that actually did the extraction on the crucial fingernail. So uh, we're going to hear from him next, and uh, I'm sure Mr. Jovic will um, be asking him all the same questions that he's asked all the other scientists about what he did, what he wore, and maybe even what car he drove. Tim and Nat, I'll just while you're on that point, um, Tim, let me throw this into the mix. Um, when you when people are listening and people are attending the court and people are going to any court cases where there's um, a question of DNA, um, a lot of the time I hear people say, oh, this is the result of defence lawyers. You know, like this is because defence lawyers put um, the prosecution globally, not just here, uh, to, uh, to such a task to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that, um, you know, the DNA comes into question, then comes all these questions about the contamination. Um, and it might seem like I'm just saying it because I work in the area of defence, but I think it's important for people to remember that although it may be, it appears like the defence are the cause of those tests to be so um, drawn out and, and um, questioned, it's not actually the defence that's doing that. It's the, it's the system that creates an environment where the test must be that it's proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, so so all the while you, you're hearing about this, um, these DNA samples being taken overseas and being putting through this test that Tim was just talking about then where the air only flows out of the room and it took me back to the Burswood Dome where I feel like if I think about that, that might have been a, a, our first DNA testing lab here. Um, and it, it always seems to be that defence, the defence gets um, blamed for this um, the system, but it's not that it's not actually the defence. It's the defence does use the facility. I certainly appreciate the defence says, uh, well, you have to reach this point, and therefore you show us that this is uncontaminated. If I could put it that way, but it's actually just our system. That's the system. That's the way we work, and that's what the test is. So, um, when people are thinking like that, perhaps it's good to think that the reason why that system exists that way is because that's what we as a community have accepted, or what has been decided over the course of the years will be the test that it has to meet um, and it serves everybody so it's not just serving um, it serves us all to know that in in our time of question if it ever comes to a point where we're being questioned about or alleged to have done something we'll be protected by the same system so it's always good for people to, to consider it that way as well and, and it really does make you think quite hard about the situation and um, instead of thinking that oh yeah well you know there's DNA here and therefore it's a done deal people are coming up to me socially and saying oh I never thought of that and you know that's really interesting how you know that contamination could mean something about this and this means something about that and so we're really having to think about it in ways that we probably wouldn't have in the past. Absolutely and I think one of the one of the points that got raised recently, which really stood out in my mind after I'd left um, doing the podcast, was the, um, I think Mr Brennan had raised, raised the issue about the telephone in the lab. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but it just takes one other person to mm. raise something that could have, could have contaminated um, uh, any sample that certainly gets you thinking and therefore we, you take, takes you back to the, the question of reasonable doubt. 
Yeah, Tim, that's fascinating with the um, air only blowing out one way because in this podcast we have spoken before about, you know, DNA can't fly around the room. So it's now interesting to hear them say that, you know, they were going to these extraordinary lengths to even make the chamber airtight, if you like. Yeah, or, or, or even, you know, more tight than that in that it wouldn't, it could, it could only come out. Nothing could come into that lab that wasn't supposed to be there. So... And, and Damien's right about the level of proof. That's that's that, that's what we should expect of, of when you're accused of such heinous things like this. In this case, in particular, but in, in hundreds and thousands of other criminal cases that that go on all over Australia, um, all over the, the, the country, you know, um, almost 365 days a year, um, we should expect that um, that standard of evidence to be to be watertight or in this case airtight is fss still operational no so they were um sold um, or shut down basically by the uh, by the uk government um around about 2012 i think um which caused a, a huge amount of controversy in the uk at the time um and it would have caused a headache for the macro investigators i'm pretty sure at that time as well because they would have wondered, well, I mean, we have these results, so are we ever going to be able to uh, to use them now the lab is, is not there? But obviously, uh, that, that, that's those fears, if they did exist, have been proved wrong because we have Miss Evans, we have Mr Talbot, we have another scientist coming up today, and then we, we, we've been told that Jonathan Whitaker, who was the, the head of research and development at FSS at the time, and he's one of, still regarded as one of the leading lights in low copy number testing across the world um, to give evidence and obviously we've seen today just a just a portion of the documents that still exist as well and that's obviously a very important not in just just in this case but of the hundreds and thousands of cases that fss would have dealt with over the years um and dr whittaker was involved in uh, as we've mentioned the bradley murdoch peter falconio's um, murder in 2006 and 2005 and 2006 which resulted in another major um, conviction of a major australian case so he's not um, not averse to giving evidence in australia and, and we're going to be hearing from him as well as his various colleagues for for several days tim um can i just sidetrack a little bit um I know you always enjoy this when we sidetrack. Of course. Um, but, but it's a question that's been playing on my mind for a couple of weeks. Um, and I'm a listener to this podcast, so I imagine there's other people that wonder the same thing. Um, there's obviously a fairly uh, significant contingency of media in uh, reporting on this case as it's happening every day. We, we, um, and, and there's a number of reporters slash journalists at the court each and every day trying to get the best um, information they can to report to the people that, that are their audience. Could you tell me what the climate of the relationship between the court and the media is at the moment? Obviously, I haven't been down there, so I'm, I'm just interested to know what your feeling is on that. It's actually... Uh, it's not too bad, actually, David. Uh, given the... Uh, the public interest in this case, the size of this case, the length of this case, or the trial, um, most of the journalists that are covering it are quite, are quite experienced themselves, quite senior, um, from various media organisations, including Seven West, who I represent, the ABC, the National Broadcaster in Australia, and the other television networks. They're all sending pretty experienced senior um, people, which I think helps 
in the relationship between each other um, because, well, we sit in a, in, a, in a room and in a court all day, every day, and we're coming up to day 50 on Friday. So that's a long time to spend with each other, but also in the court. And over the, I think over the, the course of the trial so far, there was a feeling, I think at the start, that maybe the judge was, was being, Justice Hall was, was, was getting a little bit irritated with us because we were asking for so many exhibits. But we've settled into a rhythm now, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, and I, I, I think, um, speaking from my own personal of experience and feeling, I think the, the, the relationship of them, uh, between the court and the, the, the journalists uh, has reached a, a happy working medium, if you, if you want to put it that way. Um, and we had the issue a, a few weeks ago with the suppression order, which uh, I think, we, as from a media point of view, we dealt with as professionally as we could, and we, we, we was reached an outcome there that I think everyone was comfortable with. Um, now, whether everyone on the outside and uh, of the police detectives are, are happy with the coverage, I, I'm not sure. We haven't been getting much negative feedback, I've got to say, and the way the WA police have employed a couple of liaison people that are working alongside or communicating, if you want, between us and them and the court and the, the families of the victims. Um, so that's been very helpful as well. So um, uh, it, it's, yeah, I think it's going okay. I'd probably put a hex on it now. I'll probably be, I'll probably be called before Justice Hall before the week's out for contempt or something. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 I hope that doesn't happen, and I'm pretty sure it won't. Tim, what would be the thing that would cause the most angst usually between reporters who are reporting on a case and um, administrators or um, you know other people who are in the case or in the trial? Um, well, that would depend who it was. In, in terms of uh, the actual courtroom, you would never... Uh, and, and this is a slightly different case because this is a, a, a trial without a jury. So when you've got a jury, um, you know, 12 or 14 or 16 lay people there, you've got, you've got to be... It's, there's more care that has to be taken, frankly. Or, not that we're not taking care in this case, but uh, um, a judge cannot be influenced by best coverage. I mean, that's the that's the basically the rule that we we go by because they are above all that and they're trained to be above all that but when you've got a jury of 12 or 14 or 16 they might read something in the newspaper and it might influence them and if that information is wrong or most critically hasn't been put before them during the trial then that is a real that i mean that is a cause for concern in that it could cause a mistrial and then if that happens you're in serious trouble with the court and that, uh, in, the, uh, in the ultimate, that could mean a contempt of court charge could be brought against you as a reporter, and that charge does carry a prison sentence. So that we take that very seriously. In terms of police, you're you're always aware that writing something critical or saying something critical in this case of a police investigation might get um, people offside. You, you don't deliberately go out to do it, but when the when you feel that the comment or the, or the or the is warranted, then you've got to be true to yourself and true to the you know the journalistic practice and say and uh, report what what is said in court. And some of that has been critical so far, particularly from the defence side of Path West. Um, and then you've also got to keep in mind the, the 
the families of the victims, and, and sometimes they're right at the top of your mind because mm. you're, you're sat next to them. You interact with them in the lift and in the cafe every day, and in this case, that has been the case. Um, so you're, you're always aware of what you write and what you say is going to have an impact. It's, it, it can't not have an impact. But you do always, or I certainly do, have it at the front of your mind that what you do and what you say is, is it will, in, will have an effect over and above the trial process itself and so you do take that into account so yeah there's a lot to think about um, uh, particularly with online um, uh, deadlines which there isn't any they just want it now Um, and then uh, and all the other responsibilities but uh, that's uh, that's what we get paid the the small bucks for (laughs) yeah I mean it really must be at times a bit of a pressure cooker in there and you know I know people will watch TV news and, and see these explosive things that happen outside the court mm. um, and that's because people are upset that the media is there but as you've said, you know, generally people are taking all care just to report it as it is but you can't take the emotion out of what is going on. No, absolutely not and that's why court reporting is and has been and, and will remain to be one of the mainstays of, of all types of journalism because the justice um, system is open. People are interested in it um, when when they're involved in the case and when they're not. Um, and you're absolutely right, Matt. It is a very emotional um, day or week, or in this case, six to nine months, because, <laughs> because at times you are reporting and witnessing the worst day of somebody's life, and, and, and in in this case, some three families' mm-hmm. um, lives. So you're always aware of it, um, and the day that you're become immune to it or don't become aware of it or or forget it um, is the day that you're not doing your job properly. Yeah. Well, we have a very interesting and and out of um, left field question from Jackie, and this is for you, Damien. I was gobsmacked about the information that 17,000 people gave their DNA as part of this investigation. Out of interest, what if some of the DNA voluntarily provided as part of this investigation matched other unsolved crimes? Could that be used to prosecute them? Well, it's a great question, Jackie. Thanks for writing in. Um, and I might lean on Tim a little bit here as well, because from from my recollection, and it's only my recollection, um, when this when the police originally called for the DNA donations, if I could put it that way, I, I thought there was some... Um, disclaimer put on it that it would be only considered in relation to this matter. So um, I think that in legal terms that might not always be the case and I haven't got the um, Criminal Investigation Act out in front of me so it's not something that I could answer right off the top of my head and I know I say that often but I'm always conscientious that there's so many legal precedents and, and bits of legislation and case law that um, contra um, that, that always go against each other, if I could put it that way. So my, my initial view is that I think when this um, DNA was called for, there were, the, the police made some um, sort of guarantee to people if they uh, contributed their DNA for this matter, it w- would be disposed of if, if it was never used again. Um, I, I don't propose that it would be really handy for me if that was held because against me because I don't know that, but I just that's what my recollection is. Tim, do you have any recollection of that? I've got, I have got the same recollection uh, with the same vagueness. It wasn't actually mentioned in court when Miss Barbagallo raised it. So there obviously are still records of the people that would, the DNA was taken from. Um, we know that now. They, they were kept. Now, whether those samples 
themselves were kept, the extractions were kept, that we don't know. And we obviously don't know whether they, they have been used. But I, ha I re recollect that that was part of the deal with the public, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. That if you come forward and give your DNA voluntarily, it will only be used in this case and not against you in any other way, which, um, which might well have been why there were so many samples taken. Because, as Jackie said, it was a staggering um, statistic that, 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 that popped up um, uh, it, it, in uh, in dispatches and uh, a staggering number um, amount of work that had to be done by by Pathwest um, back in the day. Well, if you think about the context of why somebody would ask that question, it's simply because what happens if I give my DNA and it's logged in the system and it's there forever and I make a mistake later on, it'll be cross-referenced. And, and it's one of the things that we, as defence lawyers, we always um, give people advice in relation to is that, you know, if you... You know, you pulled over on a simple um, DUI, or when I say simple, I mean obviously not encouraging people to do that, yeah. but you know something that's not as significant as what this um, case is about. Um, if your fingerprints and DNA are taken in the process of that, then they're logged in the police system, and that they can, you know, when they do a scan of their system, they can come up. So that's why oh, I don't obviously don't know why and um, what the the reasoning behind Jackie asking that question is, but I would imagine that that's the reason. It's, as she points out, could it be used for other cases? But as I think Tim supported, or there was a, I have a recollection that there was some sort of um, guarantee given by the police. Guarantee is not yeah. the right word, but some sort of assurance given by the police that it would only be used for th this matter. Um, and I haven't heard anything to the contrary. No. So, and you imagine the reason, if someone the reason, is, uh, the reason for that question is that our listeners are some of the most dedicated, <laughs> the most invested, and some of the most intelligent. And you know, I've got to say, uh, I've been absolutely staggered by the by the input and the continued um, uh, feedback that we we all get um, daily from from our listeners. I had a bloke called Elmo reach out to me uh, just just uh, a, a few days ago with some. Some insight that that had never that had just hadn't occurred to me, um, and uh, was was really valuable in the way I was thinking about a certain part of the case. So uh, yeah, keep, keep the questions coming, particularly to Damien because uh, he loves getting them. Don't you? <laughs> well, we do have some more from Damien. This one comes from Luke. Do the defence lawyers typically advise their clients on how to behave, act while they are sitting there? For example, don't display emotion, take notes so that you're not staring at the witness, etc. Uh, uh, let me put this out there. We encourage people to tell the truth. We tell them that telling the truth is what's required. That's what they have to do. The only time that I would ever give anyone advice about the way they behave in court would be if they asked me, if they said to me, what do you think that I should do? And my answer would generally be, Try to just be as natural as you can because I'm working on the premise that you're telling me the truth and we want the jury and the judge and the, everyone involved to pick up on the same thing. Now, if, I get a, if I'm with a client who's telling me that they, they, they want to give evidence in a certain way and I get the inclination from them that they're not telling the truth, I'll say to them, you are not coming across as very truthful. If this is the truth... We need to find a different way for you to present that because I'm working for you and I'm sitting right here now and I'm saying that I don't believe you. And if it is the truth, and I'm giving you the opportunity to reiterate to me that it is the truth, find a different way um, to portray it. So when I say find a different way to portray it, 
stop thinking so much about what the outcome might be. Think more about what the story you're trying to tell is and what 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 you know what your best recollection of that is. Um, you know, please don't come. You know, please go and get a haircut. It's going to be beneficial to you to get a haircut because you're just looking a bit scruffy. Please have a shave; it'll come off better. But you know, like some people wear a three-day growth better than others, so it's not everyone that you <laughs> tell to go. So, so I think that the the answer to the question is, um, I think all good lawyers would certainly give their clients. Um, a, a bit of advice about how they might present in court um, and if they've got a um, you know like a, a um, I'm just trying to think of what would be a good example if for instance somebody suffered with a tick and I'm that's a terrible word to use I can't think of another word something that would that would stand out to a jury what I would potentially do is raise that in in my opening I'd say well now you'll meet Mr X or Mrs X or Miss X um, when she'll give her evidence and it'll become very clear to you that she's got a twitch in her right eye and I've had a bit of fun with that during taking show just so, so I'd find a way to let the court know that that was something that um, that, that was part of um, their, their natural their natural makeup but in so in answer to the question I think that the simple answer to that question is yes we do sometimes give um, some guidance to people on how they might present but ultimately we are looking for people to get in there and tell the truth and the most natural version of that truth that they can yeah well thank you both for your time tim i know you have to run because court yeah, is starting a go again in a moment um so just tell us very quickly if you can what happens tonight um yes yeah, so we've got two video links direct from the uk of two of the staff members of FSS who worked on these fingernails um, and they will be asked about that, um, particularly Mr Talbot, who was, we understand, was the actual scientist who did the swabbing, extraction, etc., on the uh, fingernails, which led to the uh, this crucial breakthrough. So that's what we'll, we will hear late into the night. And that's via video link. Indeed. Yeah. All right, terrific. Thank you so much. Well, we'll have all those details from tonight's special sitting in tomorrow's podcast. So join us then for day 49 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont The Trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.